Amen. Take your copy of God's Word, if you will, this morning and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. And how awesome is it for us to be able to gather together today and start a new year. 2018 is here. Can you believe that? And you know, there are so many opportunities, there are so many ministries, I think, that God is opening to us for us to see what He is doing and for us to join in with Him and to see a great work done. I am excited about this year. My specific prayer has been that we would make it count. Now, I'll be honest with you. I'm not saying that we have not made it count as a church or individually. I'm not saying that at all. I believe that there are so many people in this congregation, in this sanctuary, up in the gathering, who have contributed to the kingdom in this last year. I believe that. But I pray that in 2018, we are intentional in making our time, in making our lives, making the ministry, the opportunities, everything that we have, that we are intentional in making those things count for the kingdom of God. I think it's important. Every day I realize that I have less time here on this planet. And I want to make every second and every minute count for the kingdom of God. There are too many people that need to know the Lord. There are too many people that need to grow in their faith. There are too many opportunities that God has given me. And I want us to make that commitment that we would make these opportunities count for Him in 2018. Perhaps you share the same heart as I do. And the way I want to kind of frame this this year is basically looking at four different lives. So over the next few Sundays... I guess you would say 51 Sundays, something like that. Over the next few, we're going to draw our attention to four different lives from the Scripture. Uh, I want us to look at these individuals. Now, let me say this up front. The three that we're going to look at first are people, they're human, they're flesh like us, and they are sinful just like us. I mean, when I preach through this, I don't want you to hear me saying, be like David. I don't want you to hear me saying necessarily, be like Esther or be like Joseph. I'm not trying to just teach you that or preach to you that because I don't want to just emulate some fallen individual. They've got good characters, but we know also because they are flesh and blood like us and they have a sinful nature like us that they mess up, right? So I'm not telling you you want to be just like David. There are going to be times that we're going to affirm his character and personality. There are going to be times that he will teach us what not to do. And then, of course, we'll wrap it up as we look at the most significant figure in the Scripture in all of history, and that is Jesus himself and his life. When we get to him, we find a total different life to emulate. And I want you to know that as you read through these Scriptures... As you talk about David and as you talk about Esther and you talk about Joseph, they themselves are not the heroes of Scripture. God is. God is always the ultimate hero of this story that we have here in the Bible. He is always. He is the one who is working on our behalf. He is the one empowering us. He is the one who is giving us strength. But as we look at these, we see how God empowers those lives, how those were lives that counted for the kingdom... And hopefully how he can empower our lives so that we can impact the kingdom as well. 1 Samuel chapter 16, we're going to launch out today. 
as we look at a life of passion. Certainly, as you think of David in his life, you think of passion. And today we'll see that passion that he has toward God, even as a young man. Beginning in chapter 16, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. So just a little background as we're getting into this. And really, for us to be able to focus on making our life count, we want to make sure that we distinguish between God's plan and our plan. Like as we're launching out into 2018, and as we're thinking about making our life count, we want to make sure that we are distinguishing between God's plan for us and our plan. Because there is a distinction here in these first few verses between what God wants to do and what man wants to do. And we see that all throughout the scripture. We see it all through history, right? That God has a plan and oftentimes we as individuals, we have our own plans. I mean, come on. 2018, some of us already have our plans, right? These are the things we want to do and we want to accomplish. These are the places we want to go. These are, well, these are the experiences we hope to have. So we've got these plans in our hearts. The writer of Proverbs says that all of us have plans that man has many plans in his heart, but they don't always come to fruition, he says. That's what he teaches us. Well, there is God's plan and there is man's plan here in this scripture, in this very beginning of chapter 16. God says to Samuel, he says, Samuel, what are you doing? Why are you still crying? Why are you still mourning over Saul? Now, to back it up just a moment, okay? Remember how the nation came to their first king, they had Samuel. They had this theocracy, if you want to call it that, of a government. Samuel talked to God, and then Samuel would relay God's message to the people. That's what he would do. Well, the people came and said, Samuel, we've, we've heard about this, uh, this other position that other nations have. Some, they have something called a king. And we wanted to know if we could have a king like everybody else, because everybody else got this king, and he seems to be the one who goes forth for them. He's their champion, their warrior. Samuel, nothing, nothing against you, no offense, but we'd like a king. So what did God do? Well, God came to Samuel, and God said to Samuel, Hey, Samuel, they've not rejected you. They've rejected me. But you know what? Give them what they want. Now, that's kind of a scary thing sometimes. Can you agree with me this morning? It's a scary thing when God gives you what you want. And God gives them what they want. And they have this guy named Saul. And Saul is an impressive figure, head and shoulders above everybody else. He is an impressive individual. And yes, he can lead the armies. He's a great warrior. He, he seems to be the right fit. Except... He does not always follow God fully. Really, if you look at his life, you'll see where he willfully disobeys. 
by offering a sacrifice that he should not. And then he will incompletely obey. Oh, and I need to say this probably. Incomplete obedience is full disobedience or complete disobedience. But he incompletely obeys. And God rejects him. God says, hey, you're not listening to me. We've had this experiment. The people have seen what a king can be like. I'm going to show them what a real king is. So he chooses another individual. And he says to Samuel the prophet, he says, Samuel, you're sitting around here crying. I mean, I know this is all about the plan that you have seen and what you have noted in your heart already. But I've got something else to do. I've got a plan that I'm going to accomplish. Now, I applaud Samuel here. I really do. Because Samuel was the one who was rejected. And yet, what did he want for Saul? He wanted Saul's success. He did. He loved the people. He loved the nation. He loved Saul, I believe. And he wanted the king to truly succeed. Samuel, I believe, had tried to help him and lead him. And that is the reason Samuel is so devastated because he had anointed this guy. He had hoped for good things. He had hoped that God would lead the people. He just, Samuel, the prophet of God is mourning because all he can see is the plan that he had established, the plan that he had been on. He could not see what God was doing afresh and new. God says, hey, I got somebody. I've already got a guy picked out. All you got to do is go down to Bethlehem. There's a little hamlet down there, and there's a guy named Jesse. And Jesse's got some boys. And from among those boys, you will find a new king. Go down. Well, think of David for a moment. I know that's where we're getting to, and this is the call of David. But there's David. Where is he? Where is he? You you can fast forward. Some of you have already been reading the scripture anyway. You haven't been listening to me. So you've read through. Where's David? He's out in the field. Taking care of the sheep. There he is. You know, I'll go ahead and say that he's, he's a young man. We know, I believe personally, maybe somewhere between the ages of 10 or 13. Could be as old as 15, 16 we don't know for sure, but he's a young lad. He's kind of out there in, with the sheep in the fields. And uh, let, let me ask you just, what do you think he's planning for the day? We talk about God's plan versus our plan. I mean, certainly Samuel had other plans. We see that. I mean, God was like, hey, I've got something else I want to do. And Samuel's like... Hey, I, I just can't, can't comprehend this. Saul was the king. He is the king. I'd anointed him. It seemed like this was what was supposed to. And God said, no, I've got another one. We, we know that Samuel had his own plan, but think about David. David's out there in the field. He is not privy to the conversation between God and Samuel here. Not at this point. He does not know anything about this. All he knows is he's supposed to take care of the sheep that, the, that day. What an inspiring job that must have been. I mean, to be out there with the sheep. He's just a young guy. He's just making sure that they don't run off and everything is going well and nobody comes and tries to attack them. Or he, I mean, He's doing all these different things for the sheep. He wasn't thinking, well, you know what? I bet today God is speaking to the prophet and telling the prophet that I'm going to be the king of this nation. 
You didn't know that. Because God had a plan and he couldn't even recognize it. He had his own plan. He was doing his own thing. But I love this about God. Because just when we have our own plan and we're doing our own thing, God just like interjects himself into the moment and says, hey, this is what I want to do with you. You've had some of those moments, right? You were sitting at your desk, you were doing your own work, and then all of a sudden a call of opportunity came. Maybe you were finishing up college. You didn't know where you were going to move to, what was going to happen. And the phone rang. Or a text message came through. Or an email. Somewhere, all of a sudden, there was a great opportunity. You didn't know that those conversations were happening in other cities. You didn't know that those conversations were happening at all among people. But God had initiated His plan. So in December, I got to celebrate four years of being here at Temple and being arrested. And I am so thankful that God called me here. But you, no, you don't have to. Go ahead. Yes, do it. Do it. If you're going to do it, don't do it half-heartedly, all right? Just kidding. I didn't know that there was a search committee here at Temple that was watching some of the messages that I'd preached online. I didn't know that. I didn't know that there was a guy that was here, a member of Temple Baptist Church, who had spoken to the committee and said, hey, you ought to maybe think about Reggie Bridges. He never called and told me that. He didn't believe this committee would even listen to him, to be honest with you. I don't know who's on the committee, right? I didn't know these conversations. When Dwight Anderson called me, I still can't believe that I said yes with Dwight Anderson as chair of that committee, but <laughs> he called me. I, I didn't know. God, look, you've been there. You've had job opportunities. You've had places that God allowed you to go to experience. You had ministry moments. You didn't know, but God knew because God had a plan. We have our own plans. We think this is what we're going to do. This is exactly how things are going to work out. This is the setting that I'm going to be in. But all of a sudden, God interjects himself into our lives, and he surprises us sometimes, and he says, this is what I want to be done. And if you're going to make life count this year, you're going to have to recognize that God's got a plan for you, and it's bigger than you could ever imagine. I'm not trying to boost your esteem. I'm not trying to come and bring you some... I shouldn't say this, I just said it the other day, but I, I'm not trying to bring you the, your best life now, thanks to Joel Osteen. I'm not trying to bring that to you this morning. What I want you to know is that God is a God who is great and a God who has a plan and a God who is providential, and He is the one that knows His purpose for you, and He wants to work that purpose for His kingdom's, for his kingdom's work. That's what you see here. David's out there, he's just taking care of the sheep. Sometimes you just got to go about your business. You got to take care of the things that God has placed you over and he will work his plan for you. If we're going to make it count, we're going to have to recognize that God's plan is distinct from our plan. And also we're going to have to recognize that God's perspective is distinct from our perspective. So Samuel says to God, God, this is... Somewhat amusing to me that Samuel, the great prophet, 
would have this conversation with God because he says, God, you know if Saul finds out, he's going to kill me. Now, who's over life and death itself? God. Samuel has a moment here because, again, Samuel's a sinner just like we are. There's only been one individual that's taken on human flesh that's lived a perfect life. That was Jesus. Samuel looks at God and says, you know, Saul's going to hear about this and he's going to kill me. God says, hey, what I want you to do is go down and tell him you're going to have a sacrifice. You need to have a sacrifice. Take a heifer with you. Go down. Invite the family of Jesse. You do what I'm going to tell you. I'm, I'm going to name that person for you, that individual. So look at this. Verse 4. So Samuel did what the Lord said. You ought to underline that and say, hey, 2018, that might be my goal. Just do what he says. Even when it doesn't quite fit into your plans. Even though it doesn't always make sense to you. He did what the Lord said. And he went to Bethlehem. The elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? I mean, this is the prophet of God. He's coming down to make a sacrifice. He's bringing a heifer. Really, if you understand the Old Testament... He's bringing such a sacrifice as this. It's kind of the idea that a murder is taking place. There may be some legal actions. I mean, they don't know exactly what's all happening. And they're like, are you coming in peace? I mean, how are you, how are you coming to us, Samuel? Verse 5, and he said, peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves. In other words, get yourselves, get yourselves ready. Prepare yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And so it was, when they came, that he looked at Eliab. You can, you can almost imagine this here in this little hamlet town and in this probably small venue. Samuel is there. He has the horn of oil to anoint this new king. He, he's, he's there, ready. He sees this guy walk in. His name is Eliab. He's the firstborn. And he looks at him, and he, he says, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. In other words, it's got to be the guy. Got to be the guy. He can see him across the room. Got to be the guy. Names were significant in the Old Testament times. In some ways, they're still significant today, but especially during the Old and New Testament times. Names were so significant. They spoke about personality, character. They talked about mission in some ways. I mean, think about it for a moment. Jacob and Esau, take those names. They're kind of classic names to, to see how their name is significant to their character or to their physical appearance. Esau. What does Esau mean? Like the red one, the hairy one. I mean, he was born, remember the scripture says he was born with all this red hair is just like everywhere and they just said Esau that's Esau I mean how would you like to be the red hairy one I mean no wonder he might have had a little bit of issue with his family maybe I don't know but he's Esau Jacob it means the grabber the heel because when he is born the twins are born he is grabbing on to Esau's heel so he's named Jacob and how appropriate was that? You look at his life, it stuck. His whole character was that of a heel. 
a deceiver, a grabber. When God changed Jacob's name to Israel, it was the idea that it was one who had struggled with God and seen God, and some translations might even, or, or, or some uh, terms may even say that it means something like prince because God changed his name and changed who he was. So God always was using these names, and people would use these names. Samuel himself means I have asked of God because Hannah had prayed and prayed for a child, and God had given her Samuel. So she had asked of God. She named him Samuel. So look at this, Eliab. You can almost see it. If you have any kind of, like, um, familiarity with a Hebrew, you can almost see God Father. God the Father. God is Father. Many would say it has connotations of strength. And especially as you see Samuel's response, there's no doubt that he looked very strong. That he was impressive. Now, remember Saul, the first king? He was chosen. And what about his physical stature? I said a moment ago, he was head and shoulders taller than anybody else in the nation. So he was the greatest physical specimen you could find. I don't think height actually helps. The, <laughs> but I think you can be a great physical specimen and be 5'8 as well. But he had, he, had, he had anointed Saul because Saul was physically impressive. He was a tall guy. He was the military leader. He was a general, and he was good at that. So what did Samuel think? That's how God's going to work again. Because our expectation is always based upon what we've already known. Have you ever noticed that in our lives? We just think God's going to work exactly like he did last time. Guilty as charged. And Samuel says, oh, this has got to be the one. I mean, this is the strong one. He had been the most athletic at BHS, the Bethlehem High School. He was the one. Well, the Lord corrects him, and I'm going to come back to this in verse 7. But notice, seven, seven sons will pass by Samuel. Two others are named. I do believe it is significant that we're given only these three names. Because each one, again, points us to their personality or their physical appearance. Maybe it is the one who is strong, the, the, the muscled over one, Eliab. Or maybe in verse 8, Jesse called Abinadab, made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Abinadab means like noble one or son of nobility. He's, he's, he's the noble. He has... He has the persona. He has maybe the, it's like the bloodline, the noble character of a king. There's something about him that just appears that he would be a good king. For me personally, I think this idea of nobility means that he probably could go and relate to people and relate to other kings and other leaders and he could do all that he needed to do to, as a leader and as a king. He had that great ability. See, he probably would have been Mr. BHS. You know, he is the one Bethlehem High School. I think he probably would have been. And then Shema. I mean, the word, the name says it all, right? Shema. It means to stun. You talk about a good-looking guy. Wonderful-looking man. It means astonishing. That's what it means. 
So he sees all of those. But again, back in verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his physical stature, because I have refused him. But the Lord does not see as a man sees, for a man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. See, if we're going to make it count, we've got to distinguish between God's perspective and our perspective. What does he say about our perspective? He says, we, we're concerned about abilities and appearances. We're concerned about the outward. And that's where we put all of our credence into. What somebody looks like, how somebody can do certain things or achieve certain accomplishments in their lives. Look, I I am very grateful that I got a scholarship. Some others get scholarships for their abilities, their strength. I I think that's a good thing. I'm not against that, but I'm saying to you, you can look at our whole society and see how we place the emphasis upon the outward appearance and ability of somebody. When I grew up in North Mississippi, one of our traditions as a family, this is going to be sad for some of you, but one of the traditions of our family is that we watched Miss America. September came around, we watched Miss America. Kind of like, I mean, I just kind of liked it because you just have to know, my family wasn't always together for certain. It was kind of cool. We were all watching the same thing. Kind of do it. I mean, we were watching, and again, nothing against pageants so we loved it I, I still i mean i'm trying to get to root to miss louisiana now and i do when it's one of our people but you know i still miss mississippi i always wanted to win we didn't have many other things to cheer for in the state of mississippi so we hoped we'd look at it it was a comical scene comical my mom would prepare herself for the night before we watched miss america Her preparation meant that she would put things on her face. She would put some kind of bag or something on her head. And she put on something called a duster. And I've never figured out why they call that a duster. I don't know if she'd been using it during the day. On the furniture or what? I don't don't know. But here she was. She would have this. And it was so cool. She would be sitting there. I had this this distinct image of her sitting there in a chair and looking at these people and saying, you know what, her nose is so far to the left. And she would critique them. And I never said anything to my mama because she was my mama, okay? But I was like, this this seems so, so, so strange. My daddy would look at the abilities. I remember one specific night when this, in the talent portion, this lady was walking across some glass and everything. And he's like, that's not a big deal. I could do that. And I was like, Daddy, you, you couldn't do that, all right? Let's not even pretend. Yeah, I could do that. Next thing I know, my dad is up. He makes a kick, and he is, he is on his back in the floor. We did get him to the bed that night, and he, I could hear him all night long. I didn't sleep because he was in agony of the pain from the fall. You know, it was always an experience in my house. We get so caught up in abilities and appearances. Even in churches, don't we? Some years ago, church was in the need of a pastor. They were having trouble getting a pastor. 
It wasn't because they weren't getting applicants. They were getting plenty of applicants. But every time they came together, the committee wanted to find something wrong with this one and wanted to find something. They had maybe too much experience or not enough experience or too much education and not enough education. One of the members finally just grew tired and he came on Sunday morning, he stood up and he said, we have received a new applicant. I'd like to read his letter to you. I'd like to share it with you this morning. Of course, people began to just sit back and wait for the expectation and for the letter. The committee member began this way. Dear church members, she read the letter from the applicant. I am writing to apply for position as your pastor. My experience is more along the lines of an evangelist, but I believe I could fill your position adequately. I've never attended any Bible school per se, but I have a lot of field experience. Don't have a degree on my wall, or actually a wall for that matter. I've traveled around most of my life renting, doing odd jobs to support myself and preaching wherever I was invited, churches, streets, even jails. As a matter of fact, I have been thrown in jail several times and been involved in a few public squabbles. I've been accused of being anti-Semitic, anti-authority, and causing disturbances almost everywhere I go. But I did have a few conversions to Christianity during my ministry as well as a few healings. Thank you for considering my application. Of course, the people looked up and they began to laugh. Someone said, and who would that be? Of course, the answer came from the committee member, the Apostle Paul. You could hear the pin drop just as you could here this morning. Because I'm not sure the Apostle Paul would be on our list of pastors or ministers these days. I hate when churches do surveys, especially pastor surveys. Now, I'm not saying that we can't learn things from those. And you ain't got to worry you're not going to ever have to do one as long as I'm here. I guess that speaks for itself, doesn't it? I, I can't stand it. Because I promise you, I can tell what that survey is going to say. They want somebody that's probably 35 to 45. They want them to have two kids. They want them to have maybe a dog, not a cat, but a dog. uh, I know what it's going to say. It's always going to say that. I've never really fit the profile. Totally. More so this last time, maybe. But I've always thought, this is not the way we should be in churches. We shouldn't adopt the perspective of others. I remember when I walked in to Blue Springs Baptist Church to sing the first time. I didn't know I was there to lead music as well. But when I walked in the back door, one of the deacons, I was 14. One of the deacons in the back said, and I heard him, said, we wanted a man for this, not a boy. Thank God. God gave me a good relationship as I served there and got to know George Hogue got to fish with him and have a great time with him because God can change our perspectives because get this the Lord said I don't look like other I I don't look at things like other people do like man does I look I look at the heart and that's what's so significant here God is the only one that can look at the heart truly David you know what it means beloved beloved Literally, it can mean something like to boil over with love for God. In other words, when something boils over, you can't keep it in, can you? Read the Psalms. You'll see the love of God just issuing forth from David. Oh, yeah, the seven sons passed before Samuel. 
Samuel said to Jesse, are all these young men, are they all here? And then he said, well, there remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. He's an afterthought. He's an afterthought. There's no way he could be the king. 10 to 13 years old, maybe 15 at the most. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him here, for we will not sit down till he comes. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ready with bright eyes, good-looking little kid. Wasn't anything wrong with his appearance. He's just a little kid. He comes in. He comes bouncing in. This little bit of a gleam in his eye. Still smells like sheep, by the way. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. This is the one. See, God is still looking for people Still looking for hearts that are totally in love with Him. Those are the ones He really wants to use. Those are the ones He will anoint. Those, were the, it, those are the ones that really can make it count. God's still in the business of choosing those who are unlikely. Still. Why? Because of this. And I'm just going to say this. don't have enough time to really flesh it out. But I think it speaks for itself. Is because if we're going to make it count for Him, we're going to have to distinguish between His power and our power. Look in verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose and went to Ramah. How's this little kid going to lead the nation one day? The Spirit of the Lord. Why did God choose the most unlikely candidate? So that his strength would be clearly seen and his glory would be on full display. Why does God still choose unlikely people? So that we can't brag about our own ability, our own strengths, so we're not the ones getting the credit for it. He, he chooses the unlikely so that only he will get the glory and the honor for it. And he's still doing that. 2018, I think he's still going to do that. The year, I believe, was 1809. Napoleon was marching across Austria. All the world was looking to that direction. Chuck Swindoll talks about how that year, as all the, nation, all the nations, all the world focused on Napoleon, in that year, 1809, there were significant figures born. William Gladstone, Alfred Tennyson, Edgar Allan Poe, Robert Winthrop, Oliver Wendell Holmes. And in Hardin County, Kentucky, in a log cabin, a little boy that was named Abraham Lincoln. 1809, all the world was looking, as Swindoll says, to Austria, Napoleon. But God was about to do something else. He was bringing in the lives of people, birthing individuals, that would contribute to the culture and the nation and the nations themselves. 2018, or let's say 10:20 BC. Let's go back a moment. All the nation of Israel was looking to Saul. They didn't realize there was a little shepherd boy that God was about to get a hold to and about to make a difference. Now, 2018. 
There's so many things on our hearts and lives. But what if this year God is birthing one of those babies within our congregation or our community that's going to make a difference? What if it's this year that there's going to be that college graduate that has his own or her own plan and God just interjects himself into that life and says, no, this is what I want. And moves them in a tremendous way. What if it is the unlikely? What if it's the 75-year-old unlikely candidate that God's going to just do a fresh new work in and all of a sudden, what does God do? The spirit that sins and, and the spirit that lives within begins to, begins to motivate that individual to make a difference for the kingdom. Folks, we can make it count. We can make it count if we, if we distinguish between his plan and ours, his perspective and ours, his power and ours. We can make it count. And I pray that you would commit yourself to making it count for Jesus Christ this year. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for speaking to us. Lord, we pray right now that we would respond to you in a commitment and that this year we would do more for your kingdom through your power, through your strength than we have ever done. And help us as we encourage others to love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength just as we exemplify that in our lives. We pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?